Hello and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. Today's episode is called Sydney Stories, and I'll be bringing you tales from the city's early years, as well as the not-too-distant past. All of these stories are by writers who responded to a Little Fiction's call-out. We'll hear more about these authors and the actors who have narrated their tales later in the show. Before I play you the first story, just a warning that some of today's episode does contain some colourful language. Our first story is from Canberra author Paul Cliff. It is called The Arm, and it was performed live by Little Fiction's regular Lauren Hamilton Neal at Chippendale's Knox Street Bar. The story takes us back to the 1930s and the rather gruesome find at the Coogee Bay Aquarium. We'd met at Coogee at Wiley's Baths. Named after the swimming champions, Mina Wiley, she got the silver at the Stockholm Olympics. 1912, I think. But it's 1934 that I want to talk about now. I used to catch the number 37 tram back from work in the city, you see. Get off at the beach to chase the collie wobbles out before walking up the hill home. I was only 17 back then, just a little miss. But pretty sassy in my way. And I remember the day I met Merv as clear as a bell. There was a chalkboard set up on the promenade just outside the bars saying to pay a sixpence to go in for a look at some shark they'd caught in the nets. So I paid up and in I went. And there it was, a genuine professional looking brute, quite a nasty piece of work. Blue whaler, I think, looking as happy as a sand boy in there with this big fin poking up, cruising around the tank as smooth as silk. Three metres long at least. Oh, that was about ten foot back then. Of course, before the metrics they got now. And so I'm stood there, getting my full sixpence worth, watching this thing knocking around. Feeling pretty happy to be stood up in the dry instead of down there in the water flopping around with it. And then finally, just as I'm turning to nudge away and home, the wretch starts to come on a bit agitated as you might say, weaving and banging into the sides of the pool like one of them carnival dodgem cars. Then hovers over into a corner right under where yours truly is stood and hunkers down for a bit of a sulk with a bit of the look of a bunny with Mixo caught up against a fence. And then suddenly it gets the full heebie-jeebies like it's wide up to the mains and I can see it's vomiting something up in sort of a burly, like you'd sling from a bucket out the back of a boat to catch the big fish. Blood and gore, shrimp bits, white tail and such. In among which is something that looks like someone's chewed up long socks. And then, my stars, my eyes are falling out of my head because I'm suddenly seeing a human arm floating there, naked as day, right in the middle of it. A whole human arm. Would you credit that? Whether the right or left, I couldn't say, and it's hardly the point in any case, but it was taken off as neat as a pin. I can tell you that, high up at the shoulder, just as clean as if our corner butcher had done it. And it had a blue tattoo. Imagine it. Well, I didn't know whether to laugh or smirk, to cry or scream or puke, for that matter. 
Could have done all five by rights, I should think. Oh, to be subjected to that sort of outrageous thing. Afterwards, Merv said he'd felt pretty ambiguous about it too. Shocked, just like me. So you could see there was something between us then. (laughs) Or we'd had some things in common at least. But anyway, there we both were, watching a blue whaler shark swimming about in some baths, where by rights it had no proper business to be. And then suddenly, before you can say goose, the brutes heaved up a whole human arm without a simple buy your leave, just completely unashamed. Well, it was a bit rich, I mean. And with just me and this rather nice-looking, neat-dressed young man to witness it, they all wore suits and hats back then, you know, just for the everyday. Not like now. And anyway, this nice-looking fellow, as I describe, Merv, of course, as he turned out to be, walked over to stand close up alongside me at the rail for a closer look. Or maybe to check that I was all right. Gentleman as he is. Or was. But you know another interesting thing? That arm had a watch still strapped onto it at the wrist. Whether working or not, I couldn't say. And it could be excused if it wasn't in any case, given that drastic sort of situation, eh? But I'll never forget the sight of that arm, not for as long as I live. Some things are made to stick in your mind or your brain, like a chicken bone gets caught in your throat, or a floating arm with a blue tattoo and a wristwatch still strapped to it, whether ticking or not. Well, that's one of those memorable sorts of things. My word. So anyway, that's how me and Merv met, you see, since you ask. At the Wiley's Baths at Coogee in 1934. Or 35, was it? And so, though it was a fair bit of a shock at that time, things turned out quite good in the end. Didn't they? Well, except for the poor bloke who belonged to the arm, and for whatever happened to the rest of him, and for the shark too, I guess, if you're the kind inclined to care about such things, because they went and killed it after that. Cut it open, you see. Oh, to check. Which was just a natural response. And the police got some fingerprints off it. Oh, the arm, that is, not the shark. And his wife was able to identify him by the tattoo, apparently. Or was it the watch? And so that was also fortunate, though I'm not sure they ever actually managed to prosecute. Anyway, it was quite a famous case in the day, written up in all the papers and in the newsreels and such. But my word... It was pretty outrageous, the whole blessed thing. Life's amazing. Sometimes, the way it works. It's true. At least, it certainly makes you stop and think. That was Lauren Hamilton-Neal performing Paul Cliff's The Arm. Paul is a Canberra-based poet, playwright and editor. He has published five collections of poetry and a number of stories in Australia and overseas over the past 25 years. His experimental play, Deadline, a manual for hostage-taking, won the Canberra Playwrights Award. The next piece is a microfiction called Court by Hilary Hewitt and it tells the little-known story of one of Parramatta Road's founding mothers. It was performed by Claire Omi 
and was recorded live as part of our show Humans of Parramatta Road at Knox Street Bar, Chippendale. London, 1786. Esther Abrahams, a young woman with long black hair and almond eyes, is sentenced for stealing 24 yards of silk lace. Transported to New South Wales on the First Fleet, she catches the eye of Lieutenant George Johnston, a naval officer from Annandale, Scotland, under the patronage of the Duke of Northumberland. Johnston takes up several hundred acres on the southern outskirts of the settlement of Sydney. He and Esther live at Annandale Farm in a convict-built brick house with a wide veranda, a vineyard and a long avenue lined with Norfolk pines that leads down to a gatehouse on the road to Parramatta. They have seven children. Esther's sentence expires. When George returns to England for several years under court-martial for mutiny during the Rum Rebellion, Esther manages his estates. She organises the breeding and shearing of prize merinos. She takes cattle to Horsley Park for slaughter. She installs a kosher kitchen. When George returns to Sydney, they marry. The Duke of Northumberland sends agricultural implements. After George dies in 1823, leaving Esther Annandale Farm, she decides to sell up and return to England. Their eldest son, privately educated, a naval hero, takes her to court. He claims the farm. Esther is declared insane. That was Court by Sydney-based writer Hilary Hewitt. Hilary has published poetry and short stories. She is currently writing a novel based on memories of growing up in Australia and France. Our next piece is by acclaimed author and academic John Dale and is a reflection on the many changes his local Camberdown neighbourhood has gone through over the years. The story began, according to the author, with the discovery of an old black and white photograph of a boy with a bicycle. You can see a mural based on this piece by Sydney artist Daniel Lethlean Higson on the Little Fiction's Facebook page. Here's Boy with a Bicycle, narrated by Joel Horwood. Camperdown is not the kind of suburb that inspires allegiance. There are no commemorative plaques, no monuments to great men. King's Cross has its dark side and Glebe its churches. But Camperdown is different. It lacks an urban village, the row of useful shops that define a real suburb. The few large stores scattered along Parramatta Road, Ray's Outdoors, Godfrey's and Drummond Golf, are located here because of the relentless stream of traffic that flows back and forth along Sydney's oldest arterial road. 20 years ago, there was a Commonwealth Bank and a post office on the corner of Parramatta Road. Traces of Camperdown's working class past linger between the newly converted warehouses and factories. One of the oldest industrial hamlets in Sydney, Camperdown at one time boasted a foundry, a soap and candle makers, a coachworks, a cordial factory, a tannery, a glassworks, two biscuit factories, and a prosperous pottery works founded by Enoch Fowler in 1837. At its peak, Fowler's pottery employed 70 men and boys. 
Robert Fowler, who inherited the business from his father, built a grand house at 14 Australia Street near Parramatta Road, a two-storied villa with its own ballroom and gardens, a fernery and an orchard. Today, overshadowed by a featureless block of modern units, the house survives in disrepair with the name Cranbrook hand-painted in white on two sandstone columns. Horses have played an important role in the suburb's working-class past. A stone and concrete memorial stands in the shadows of the fig trees opposite Camperdown Park, bearing the inscription, to honour James Sullivan, who lost his wife on 23rd July 1924 when trying to save his employer's horses from death by fire. We know little about this Camperdown hero, as the Herald called him other than that he lived locally and was an employee of Mr. W.E. Budd, who paid for his burial at Rookwood Cemetery. How many other stories of blue-collar workers deserving of recognition have been forgotten along this narrow corridor? Camperdown is a slippery suburb to get a handle on. It is in a perpetual state of becoming. In the laneway behind our house, another factory is being transformed into boutique terraces. Gone is the Art Deco apartment that once graced the top floor of the 1930s factory warehouse. Painted on the side of Building A on the University of Sydney's Mallet Street campus, the face and torso of Chesty Bonds watches over Camperdown. It is impossible to be nostalgic about the suburb's working-class past, or to romanticise the hotels, such as the Honest Irishman, now the Camperdown Hotel, stationed along Parramatta Road with their tiled walls and bad food. The best of those old pubs, the Student Prince Hotel, is now a brothel serving the racing crowd. A history of smells might reveal more about Camperdown than a history of facts, for the soap and candle works, the tannery, the foundry, the aerated cordial factory and the pottery works each produced their distinctive fumes and odours. The sweet marshmallow smell of chocolate-coated wagon wheels baking in their trays lingers in the suburb's memory long after the Western's biscuit factory closed in Bar Street and was converted into modern spacious apartments. Certain suburbs like Bondi or Paddington speak to us in the language of desire, of how we see ourselves and how we want to be seen. On Victory Lane near Parramatta Road, there is a scrawl of red graffiti which says, best to forget. If Camperdown could speak, it would say very little. Aerial photos from the 1970s show Camperdown Park was similar to today, with no additional seats or plantings, while around it changes occurred at a relentless pace. The Greek corner shop is now Chinese owned, and the Chinese consulate behind white razor wire occupies an entire block. The beauty parlour was once a bedding shop, while the sports physios is an art gallery. The paint shop on the corner of Salisbury Road was once the local butchers. Needham's Garage on Australia Street, which for decades serviced Studebaker Larks and Hawks, is now an architect's business. And the trendy cafe on Fowler Street that was once a store is now called Store. A memory of a place is merely a memory of the last time we remembered that place. Our memories, like the streets and homes around us, are constantly changing so that each time we visit a place, we remember not what happened, but only our memory of what happened. Sydney Water is digging up cracked water pipes near the park, and I have a memory of them digging that same spot 10 years ago. 
Developers have demolished the Toyota dealership on the corner of Australia Street and Parramatta Road to build residential units, but for a long while directions for its vehicle sales and service remained on its website. Traces of the past mingle with the present. Memories are laid down over memories until it is meaningless to unravel them. A boy is bicycling towards Parramatta Road. Behind him in the distance are two horse-drawn carts and the blur of a third dray on the crest of the hill. To his right is Camperdown Park surrounded by wrought iron fencing, which will be removed during World War I. The park is gated and locked at nights in the manner of the public parks in London. Sandstone pillars mark the entry to the pedestrian paths. These tall, gracious pillars, one crowned with a stone angel, will also disappear. There are no automobiles on the road, only piles of steaming manure. In summer, dust from the dried horse dung on the street blows into front yards and open windows and breeds large numbers of flies. When it rains, the liquefied manure and horse urine is carried into houses and shops on the boots of working men and boys. The sharp clatter of horses' iron shoes on the road creates a constant din which combines with the curses of the drivers and the creaking hickory and steel wheels of the heavy carts and wagons overloaded with ice and milk and building materials. Sometimes a horse will slip on the paved road and break its leg or collapse from exhaustion in the street. Dead horses are not an uncommon sight along Parramatta Road and their carcasses are soon dragged away. A single gas lamp stands on one side of the street and on the other side, electricity poles have been installed, although there are no visible wires. Fowler's pottery yard, with its stacked terracotta drain pipes and chimney pots, is separated from public view by a paling fence opposite the park, and behind the open yard stands a row of eight identical terraces, each with a narrow veranda. The boy in the photograph is wearing a hat and coat. The street is scarred from the wheels of the heavy carts, and dampness hangs in the air. Perhaps the boy works at Bud's stables or at Fowler's pottery, or perhaps the boy is a messenger. The photograph is uncaptioned, yet the surroundings convey much about this old working-class Sydney suburb. Silently, the boy rides down Australia Street, bringing memories of the past. That was Little Fiction's regular, Joel Horwood, reading John Dale's Boy with a Bicycle. Next we have The Kiosk, written by Karolina Ristevsky. Speaking about her story, The Kiosk, Karolina says memories of queuing for food on a blistering hot day at the Petersham Pool are still fresh in her mind. This is the second piece today, performed by Claire Omi. My body dripped with water. My left palm clamped $2.50. It felt heavy in my hand. Clumps of 20 cent pieces and a few 10 cents all scrunched up together. The soles of my feet sizzled on the ground. If there was grass, I walked on it. Where there was shade, I ran and jumped on the darkened concrete. As soon as I turned the corner, I saw the large hole in the wall. There was a huge line in front of it. Only the first three people were guarded from the sun. I stood in line, shifting my weight from one foot to the other. The concrete was hot and scorched the soles of my feet. I couldn't stand still. It could have killed me, burned me to a cinder. The girl in front of me had long hair. It kept dripping on the ground. 
The line moved forward and I stepped into the wet concrete she made. I had some relief. Her towel was wrapped around her back. She smelled like coconut and bubblegum. The ground became hot again. The small puddle turned warm. I sprung from foot to foot. Two kids at the front were taking their time, far too long to decide. That was what the pictures were for above the hole in the wall, pies and sausage rolls or hot chips. A kid who waited at the side unwrapped his Blinky Bill ice cream, but Bill didn't stand a chance in the sun. No contest for the heat. Bill's bubblegum nose melted right off. It dropped and rolled onto the ground. The kid followed it, picked it up, blew on it and stuck it inside the tiny front pocket of his board shorts. I reckon he'll forget it. I reckon his mum will have to pry open his pocket. His shorts will be ruined and his mum will threaten to never buy him another pair. Summer for that kid was over. The line moved up. The girl in front of me let her towel loose and a section fell on the ground. I wanted to step on it, rub my toes on the soft cloth, only for a moment to soothe my souls, but she moved too quickly. I stood staring at the pictures above the hole in the wall of sunny boys and paddle pops, hot dogs and redskins, dollar bag of hot chips. Still, I couldn't decide. At last I had reached the shade. The sun had dried me. When I got to the big hole in the wall, a guy looked at me. What do you want? He asked me. A dollar bag of hot chips and tomato sauce, I said. A Coke and a bag of mixed lollies with whatever's left. The guy went to the fridge, slid the glass to the side and dug deep to get a bag of frozen fries. He ripped the bag open, poured half in one bucket and dropped it into hot oil. He dropped the other half in a neighbouring bucket and in the same sizzling oil. He handed me my can of Coke, scooped a small packet of mixed lollies and gave me that too. It'll be two minutes for the chips, he said, and ushered me to the side. I watched as some kids jumped from left foot to right foot and others that stepped on their towels. Two minutes went quick. The fryer beeped and the guy on the other side of the wall scooped a dollar bag of chips. He handed them to me. I walked against the side of the change room wall along the shade. Kids splashed in the pool, girls shrieked and even some guys screamed worse than the girls. Despite all the signs, no running, no jumping, no bombing, everybody seemed to be running or jumping or bombing. I walked slowly so as not to spill my chips. I had made it to the shallow end of the pool and could see the grass and my big bright orange and black towel. Then, from out of the boys' change rooms, two guys bolted out like they had lit a firecracker up their ass. They knocked me from behind, I dropped my hot chips and my can of Coke spun out of control and exploded. I had no more coins to fill my fists. <laughs> That was actor Claire Omi reading The Kiosk by Karolina Ristevsky. Claire is a graduate of the Actors' Centre Australia. She recently appeared in the Genesian Theatre's production of Much Ado About Nothing. Our final story today takes us to Parramatta Road, circa 1988. It is written by Blue Mountains author Anna Radovic and performed by Little Fiction's regular, Elanie Schumacher. One street back from Parramatta Road and my baby daughter's cry competed with the constant growl of traffic from both road and air. As the planes flew so low over our heads, we could almost touch them and my partner and I mouthed words at each other like, it's your turn, but I have to get up for night shift in three hours, but I'm going mad. 
And at midnight, I'd put her in the stroller and walk her through the streets of Petersham, down Catherine, Margaret, Crystal. I was too sleep-deprived to be afraid, even though a man was knifed not so very far from there. I walked and I walked until the snuffles and protests stopped and my little one slept. The silence of relief. The streets washed clean, shiny and slick, and just a tiny bit Paris after the early evening thunderstorm. Down the alley where the dunny men used to once collect the waste, the wildcats screeched, fighting over scraps. I walked along past the Indian restaurant where I told my partner the news that he was going to be a dad, and where there used to be a French bakery with the best almond croissants ever. It had a shop sign with a French cockerel. We had one in our bathroom once, for a week. He just turned up in the backyard. Lots of people still had chooks then, but even in the semi-darkness, he crowed his head off at 4am each morning until my partner said, he has to go. And I found a new home for him through the library notice board and I hoped he was happy. In a dark, unappealing part of the road, there was a South American restaurant with live music on Saturday nights pan flutes and song from that movie, The Mission. My daughter conceived on one of those nights after a plate of feoada and too much cheap red wine. And I knew straight away that she was there. Didn't need the little white stick with the pink stripe. In the rundown terrace next to ours was a house full of Maoris, rocked the roof and Big Tua woke us in the morning by throwing open his sash window and I called out, morning Tua, and he responded by chucking up last night's beer onto the narrow concrete walkway between his house and ours. Minutes later we heard the hose washing it all the way into the scrubby patch of grass that none of us cared much for because we were all renting and the landlord didn't care much for us and left the holes in the roof to leak in the heavy rain into every pot-like receptacle we could find and the lead paint peeled from the walls in crusty combs and the outdoor loo blocked and we wished there was still a dunny man. And the mice that used to run up your leg as you washed the dishes and the cockroaches like nuclear mutations as big as small crocodiles and I once found a charred flattened mouse in the bottom of the toaster after weeks of cooking toast and smelling something unidentifiably bad in the tiny converted kitchen and I ran out into the street screaming with the toaster and threw it into the auto and never again ate toast without checking the toaster for mice first. <laughs> and the planes kept on flying and the cats kept on screeching and the traffic got louder and louder and Tua and his family moved on and the Italian family up the road with six kids in two bedrooms built another illegal bedroom which teetered on the top of their house and pissed off the neighbours until the council told them to take it down and they moved out to Bondi which was still vaguely affordable in those days. And we laughed and we loved and we filled the space under that leaky roof with friends and children and dogs and memories in that first little house where we began our grown-up life, we realised that although we didn't have much, we had a lot. And it was important to know that because in the end, all you have is those memories and those times when you danced in the moonlight under the roar of the plains and the lights you strung in the avocado tree that never fruited, twinkled like stars. And even though you knew it wasn't Paris, 
It was just as good. That's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the stories in today's Sydney Stories episode. You can find out more about today's stories, authors and actors by visiting the Spineless Wonders website at www.shortaustralianstories.com.au. Little Fictions is brought to you by Sydney short story publisher Spineless Wonders. This episode is produced by Bronwyn Meehan and our sound engineer is Adrian Vecchio-Erna. Our theme song, A Tune, is written and performed by Annie Vidler. We very much welcome your feedback on our show, so please head to the 2RPH website, www.2rph.org.au, and leave a comment. I'm Ella Watson-Russell. Do join me next time for more Little Fictions. <laughs>